Next Sunday is going to be completely out of the ordinary. I'm going to stretch you all, okay? We're going to be outside, and uh, we're going to have a roundup Sunday as we round everybody back up for the fall. And so there is no Sunday school. There is breakfast. So come at 9.15. Okay, everybody make that mental note. We want you here. I want you to look around. We have got a bunch of snowbirds. It's not going to be very long and you're going to be leaving. I know that because we got snow coming. <laughs> we live in Star Valley. Okay? So some of you are going to be leaving and then look around. You see a lot of families, a lot of you, you know, a lot of new people in the last year. We tend to be a church that's just all the time having people come and go, and nobody a lot of times completely knows each other or knows each other as well as we would like. We want you here for breakfast, okay? 9.15, we're going to eat breakfast. The reason we're doing breakfast is by lunchtime, everybody is tired and it is hot and everybody's just ready to go home. So we're going to eat breakfast and then... You'll all have a full belly, and I'll put you to sleep when I preach, okay? No, we'll try not to. But we're going to set up chairs out here, and so dress accordingly, okay? Dress accordingly, because we will be outside, weather permitting. I'm going to be teaching to you on the back of a horse. That's why it's out there. So if it's rainy, me and my horse have to be up here. So that may not work, so pray it doesn't rain. Okay. okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. I won't remember every request that is mentioned. Uh, you help as we pray. Let's pray together as we go to the throne of grace. You, What the Holy Spirit lays on your heart, you bring before the throne as we go to prayer this morning. But let's join our hearts together and give this time to the Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are in our midst. You tell us in your word that when two or three gather in your name, you are there. Lord, we thank you that your spirit resides within us, that he fills us. I pray that this morning and all that we do and all we say, your spirit would have freedom, that he would not be grieved, nor would he be quenched. I pray, Lord, for your children that are in Afghanistan. Lord, Many of them probably huddled in, in just places trying to stay safe or whatever the situation is, Lord. I just pray that not only would your spirit minister to them, but that, Lord, you would protect them. You tell us in your word that the angel of the Lord encamps around those that fear him. And you deliver them. Lord, we pray that you would deliver your people from the evil one and from intentions to harm them that you would grow your church during these days there, all around the Islamic world, that, Lord, you would grow your church. I pray for our missionaries. Lord, I, I thank you for Steve King. I pray for him. Lord, I thank you for hearing from him concerning Anna. We have thought often of her as a church. Thank you that she is back in the States, that she is safe. I pray that, Lord, you would help her as she seeks direction for next stages of ministry in her life. Lord, I pray for those who are ill. Donald mentioned this friend of his with COVID. Probably many of us know people who are 
fighting that illness or other sicknesses currently. Pray that you would protect, that you would heal. Lord, we ask that in all things you would be glorified this morning. That as we sing praises to your name, as we contemplate your word, as we come face to face with the glory of God in the face of Christ this morning, that we would be changed by your glory. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On the burning cloud this morning when the daring Christ showed and the glory of the church perhaps to share when his chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the sky and the road is called up yonder I'll be there when the road
church at this point. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We're going to continue to work through this chapter this morning. Looking at the overarching picture of it. Digging down into some of the details, obviously, and yet trying to get the entire picture here in our mind of what is happening in this text. Of course, Romans chapter 11, as we have talked about, is a part of the greater section of the book of Romans. Uh, beginning in chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, that deals with God's sovereignty. Set in the context of the struggle that the nation of Israel has had. And so we continue to go into that today. The overarching question is in verse 1. It is the question that the Apostle Paul is answering in light of what he said at the end of chapter 8. What can separate us from God's love? Can tribulation or distress, nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through the One who loved us. Paul said, for I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor anything in all creation. That's pretty comprehensive. Nothing can separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. So what happened to Israel? Did God abandon them? They abandoned God. 
They rejected their Messiah. And so we see in chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. That is the overarching question He is answering in this chapter. To do so in this chapter, we will see that Paul, the Holy Spirit, teaches us some things. He gives us some facts. We will also see in this chapter that there are some very specific commands that are given to us. There are commands that are laid upon the people of Israel. There are commands that are placed and laid before all of us. Most specifically, you will note as we go into this chapter, he will say to us, do not be arrogant. If God did not spare the natural branches, but he cut them off, do you think he will spare you? And so he says, consider, consider very closely, very carefully, the kindness of God and his severity. Kindness to you in bringing you in his grace into his fold, but severity upon his people who have had so many blessings and then rejected him. Severity. We will also see in this chapter again there is the language of prophecy where he is pointing us to future events. Last week we went back to Israel. Today we go future Israel. We look into the future. And we will see that there is going to come a time when world history will culminate. The story will have been written. And in all of those events that are transpiring at that time, when time is no more, when the roll is called up yonder, when Jesus is coming again. In all those events, there are things that are foretold that will happen, that will unfold. And at the apex of the time, just as in the first advent, when he said in Galatians 4, it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem us. And it will be at the fullness of time that God the Father will send forth his Son. And time will be no more. When that event happens, if we are alive, we will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord. And when that happens, your day timer just went out the window. Your agenda just changed. For all of life was altered by an event. And Jesus said to us repeatedly in his word, watch and wait. 
for I am coming as a thief in the night. Be ready. And so as we come to the chapter this morning, as we do so, let's begin by looking to the Lord in a word of prayer. Lord, as we sang this morning, what a powerful thought that man does not live by bread alone. Man does live by bread. We need bread. But not alone. Physical food sustains our physical body in a way, but only within the confines of your sovereign care. For we truly live by the word of the Lord. So even at original creation, when you made man out of the dust of the earth, you breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. You spoke, and it was done. It was your word that brought life. And so, too, Father, we come before you, and we recognize before you that it is your word that brings life. And Lord, I admit before you that apart from you, Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. We need you, Lord, by your Spirit to breathe life into the Word that is open before us. Holy Spirit, we ask you you would come in your role as illuminator and teacher that you would open our eyes, that we would see Jesus. And we would understand the riches, as we see in this chapter, the riches of your grace to us, that we would be called, that we would be given eternal life, not by anything that we had done, but completely and solely because of what, Lord, you did for us when you died for us and you purchased us to yourself. May we rejoice in that, Lord. Oh, Lord, may it ignite our heart, not just our mind. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So he begins with a, with a question. The main issue is, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. We're going to run through the chapter, so go with me. I hope you're in Romans 11. From that, he first of all illustrates this reality that God has not rejected his people because Paul says of himself, his own personal experience, I am an Israelite. I am an Israelite and God saved me. Paul says in the text, I had no intention. It's in between the lines. But it's all through the New Testament. Paul had no intention of becoming a follower of Jesus. In fact, he hated Jesus. He's persecuting his followers. But Jesus comes and initiates the relationship with him. So is the case with us. And so he uses himself as an illustration. 
He says in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. We've already studied that word. We won't go back into it except to say this. In the omniscience of God, God foreknew you before you were born. God knew you in eternity past. And he knew exactly what he would do in saving you at a moment in time. He has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then he goes into the story of Elijah. And he uses the story of Elijah as an illustration of a reality concerning the people of Israel. Dave read a part of this text to us this morning in 1 Kings. Elijah was a man who was mightily used by God, wasn't he? He was a courageous man. But he becomes discouraged. He becomes defeated after Carmel. When all of the prophets of Baal have gathered there, fire has fallen from heaven. And he has seen mighty work of God. Rain has come. And Jezebel says to him, Buddy, by this day time tomorrow, you're going to be like one of those prophets of Baal. And Elijah tucks tail and he runs. He ends up in the desert in Sinai, discouraged and rejected and dejected. And he says to God, I alone am a prophet of you. And I am left alone. And in passing in the story, he says, uh, let me correct your misperception. There are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And he says here, I have kept them for myself. They didn't keep themselves. I have kept them. I have 7,000. So here again, we see in this text that this is not the first time. What we are seeing now in world history is not the first time that Israel has apostatized. And yet even in their apostasy, God always kept and chose a seed. He always had a remnant. And so he is using that as an illustration to remind these people in Rome Yes, to a large degree, the nation of Israel has rejected their Messiah, and we will see why in this chapter. But even though that's still the case, God has his people. He then goes on. You will notice the third thing that he does is in verse 7, he asks a question. Right? What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was it trying to seek? Remember in chapter 10, verse 1? It says in chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they are seeking to establish their own righteousness. What are they seeking? 
They are seeking to establish their own righteousness. And in doing so, they failed to obtain it. Let me just say that for a minute. If all you ever try to do is to seek to obtain, to establish your own righteousness before a holy God, you will never obtain it. It must be imputed to you, as we saw in the catechism this morning, by justification, when Christ's righteousness is imputed to you and placed in your account. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You will never get there, my friend. Try and try as you may. Your good will never be good enough. Not before a holy God. And so he says Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The rest are hardened. He then quotes from some other places in the Old Testament. And in verse 11, he goes to another question. Let's continue in the chapter. Notice verse 11. So I ask. So I ask. He's using a question to cause us to think. So I ask. Did the Israelites stumble in order that they might fall irrevocably? Okay, they stumbled. But was their stumble a kind of crash and burn that is irrevocable? Is there no remedy to it? How does he answer that question? Notice what he says. By no means. Once again, very strong language, as he said in chapter 11, verse 1. Has God rejected his people? By no means. Did they stumble in order that they would fall irretrievably? By no means. Rather, this is what God is doing. The ways of God, as we will see by the time we get to the end of this chapter, are many times a mystery to us. His ways are higher than our ways. What is God doing in this occasion of Israel's rejection? Israel's rejection of their Messiah. Rather, it is through their trespass that God brought salvation to us. To the nations. The word Gentiles there is a Greek word, ethnos. We get things in the English language like ethnic. Ethnicities. And so we often use the word Gentiles but we don't really think about what he's saying there. All he's really saying is he's just talking about all the nations of the world. And the Jews categorized people in two ways. There were the Jews, the chosen people, and then there were the rest of us, the Gentiles, the nations. And God is saying here, the covenant came through the Israelite people, and it stopped there in so many ways. They never dispensed it further than themselves, except on some very rare occasions, like the story of Jonah. 
now to the rejection of the Messiah by the people of Israel, God in his sovereign grace took the message of salvation to all the nations, to us. That is what God was doing. And then he goes on and he says why he did that. It wasn't just to save us, although that is a part of his plan. It was also in order to make Israel jealous. And then he goes on and he builds on that thought by saying if they'll trespass means the riches of salvation coming to us in the world. Their failure means riches for all the nations. How much more will their full inclusion mean? This is the language of prophecy. What he is saying is their rejection, their failure, their trespass, brought grace and riches to us. And think of how the church has flourished in the world. But then he says, okay, when their full inclusion happens, and we're going to look at that in this text as we go through, their full inclusion happens, how much more will the overflow of that blessing reach the world? What he is really prophetically prophesying here that we will see in another verse is there is coming a day when despite all of Satan's efforts and all of the darkness that grows and pervades the world, which will grow, we see that all through Scripture, but as the people of Israel look upon him in faith whom they have pierced, and they receive Jesus as their Messiah, there will also be parallel to all the evil and all the wickedness. And we live in pretty dark days, right? Amen? You awake? We live in pretty dark days. But I think if you read the book, you see it's probably going to get a whole lot darker. It's going to get worse. But as that darkness grows, God in His Spirit is going to be doing something that is magnificent and is majestic and He will be bringing into the kingdom not only His people, Israel, but also in an overflow, the nations. And there will be tremendous outpourings of the Holy Spirit. I think you can get a glimpse of that when you read the book of Revelation. And you see those two things running like railroad tracks, side by side, wickedness and evil and judgment and darkness. And yet, witnesses to the gospel and salvation and multitudes upon multitudes that no man can number. Continue on. He says in verse 13, it's important. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Notice that sentence. Who is he talking to? You who? We awake? 
us. Not that the whole Bible isn't to us. He is saying here specifically, now I am speaking to you. What does he say to us? Let's see what he says, okay? Are you wondering what he says? He says, I am an apostle to the Gentiles and I magnify my ministry. Paul had a very specific apostleship, and we won't go into that in great detail this morning, but he says, I magnify that. I glory in it. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? Here again, this is prophetic of what is going to happen in the world. But life from the dead. We read it last week in Ezekiel 37. The valley of dry bones. And then he uses two analogies. If the dough offered as first roots is holy, so is the whole lump. Picturing something, the offering by the Jews of what they called the first fruits, the beginning of their harvest, and they would bring it, and it would be a partial gift. But in it, there was a sanctification of the entire thing. And so they would bring a part of their harvest, a part of the lump of dough, and in bringing a part, they were signifying a consecration of the entirety. In a way, that's what we do when we give our offerings. When we give to the Lord, you put money in the offering plate or you send money to some ministry and, and you're giving, what you are doing is you are attesting to the reality that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and you're given a part of it. Why? Because you are acknowledging he owns it all. It is an acknowledgement that he owns it all, and that all of it is holy, that all of it is his, that he is the one who calls the shots, that he directs your budget. Not you. Not I. And then he goes into this other analogy that he then is going to build on, and this is the meat of the message, and then we'll be bringing it to a conclusion. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, what branches were broken off? Some of these branches of Judaism. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, and now you share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, notice this, here's the command, don't be arrogant. Don't think that because you're an American and we've been so blessed by God and he'll always give it to us. Because what does he say? Don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root. It is the root that supports you. And you will say, branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Oh, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. You stand fast through faith. So don't become proud. You better fear. Why? Because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare 
you. Whew. Think of the word spare. Second Peter, it's used twice when he says this. The angels who sinned, he did not spare. But he cast them down in chains of darkness. And then he said, in the ancient world, the antediluvian culture that became so permeated with evil and wickedness and ran rampantly to it, he did not spare. And here's the blessed one. In John 8, he did not spare his son. He delivered him up for us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Here's the truth, my friend. He will not spare you. He will not spare you. He did not spare the angels. He did not spare the ancient world. He will not spare you if you try to obtain the righteousness he requires by your own effort, as did the Jews. He will not spare you. But since he did not spare his son, he will give you life as a gift. But we better consider something. This God we read about is not an idol. We want to make him like us. He is not. He is a thrice holy God. He is the epitome of kindness. He says that in the next verse. But he is the epitome of severity. He's both. And so he says, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. What is he saying? Consider this. Why? Or you will be cut off. He talks about the grafting. Here's the mystery. Here's the mystery and we're done. The mystery begins in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. It is until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Comes into what? The kingdom comes into the church. And it is in this way that all Israel will be saved. As it is written, 
The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And that's where I want to park. Let's park for a minute and look at this vista. You go to Yellowstone and you hit a cool spot and you park. Isn't it terrible when you're driving up the road and some tourist just parks in the middle of the road without any warning? Because they want to see the chipmunk that just ran across the street. Right? You've been there and done that and you about back end them or rear end them, whatever you call that thing. But you come up that windy road and there's a break in the timber a little bit that hasn't all been burned. And there's a pullout, and you pull over, and there's a vista that stretches out in front of you. It's glorious. Let's pull over. The gifts, what's that? Greek word is charisma. Speaks of a gracious gift. It's used in Romans chapter 6, talking about the gracious gift of salvation for the gifts, the calling. He is the one who calls us, right? We've seen that all through this text in chapter 9 on to here we are now coming to an apex. The gift, not by works of righteousness which we have done, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift... The calling of God is irrevocable. The word irrevocable, I think, misses it, although I like the ESV. The old King James says, the old King James, says the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. And that's really the word. This is what he's talking about. He's just not talking about something he won't that is kind of irrevocably set in stone, although it is set in stone, because he foreknew it. Rather, it's deeper than that. It's not like a contractual thing. It's a thing of the heart. It's this. The gifts, the calling of God, is without regret. Put there in your mind the word Regret. On the Truth Project this morning, he talked about buyer's remorse. So you're all that were in the Truth Project this morning think I'm borrowing his illustration, but I'm not. It was in my notes before he mentioned it. Okay? I got to set that right. I'm not stealing from Dell here. Here's the deal. The gifts and calling of God are without any buyer's remorse. When he saved you and then you fell, 
and you went through a time of rebellion and you walked away from him? He wasn't sitting up in heaven saying, wish I had not saved Tim Moyer because now I'm stuck with him. I want us to think of the beauty in that. Last week I went to a horse sale and in a weak moment I bought two. I got on the one. He's a seven-year-old gelding who's had 90 days on him. He's a little bit of a handful. We're doing well. I'm not going to bring him and ride him before you next week because I don't want to get bucked off. I really don't have any buyer's regret over it, though. I love the guy. He's just great. He's got his problems. We're working through them. It was kind of cold and testy this week, and I was trying to put a ride on him every day for just a few minutes, and, and we had a couple of moments. But I got no regret because he's exactly what I wanted. He's a fast-walking, boneheaded meathead that's going to be a good horse. I mean, he's that kind of horse. He was just what I was looking for. You know what? When God saved you, you were just what he was looking for. Can we look at that this morning for a minute? Turn down the music in the car. And think about this truth. When God saved you, he has no regrets. You got regrets. Because you failed. So have I. He has none. Let's pray. I thank you, Lord, that you are coming again. You are coming in clouds of glory. We're going to sing about that in a minute here. We're going to think it's Christmas because we're going to sing joy to the world. But Lord, what a joyous thing this is that you are returning. And at the apex of all of time, we are going to reign. We are going to rule with you. And all the petty things of this life will be done. There will be no more thorns. There will be no more thistles. There will be no more war. They're going to burn up the tanks and they're going to melt them down and they're going to make farm implements. We're going to sit at table with you. You're going to break the bread and you are once again going to drink the cup. Even so, Lord, come quick. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have saved us. And I am confident that there's people in this room that your Holy Spirit is tugging at their heart because they know they have never come to that place where they have put their personal faith and trust in what you did for them. And they're hanging on, Lord, to the vestiges of their broken life and sin. And Holy Spirit, I know they'll never be able to give it up, just like I was never able to give it up, until you just make them give it up. And so, Lord, we pray that you would redeem, you would call, and we thank you.
In Jesus' name, amen. Could you stand as we sing our closing song